Speedos. Get that. A KB exclusive. Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. All right. Well, we're on to week two of the Let It Be box. Yes. And and I'm excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, considering the way things are going, we're all pretty excited to be anywhere, I think. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, but I, I'm particularly happy to be here because um, we're going to be talking about a gem I didn't expect. So before we get into the actual record itself, there's this business of did they choose the right version or not? It turns out that the Japanese SHM CD version of the disc has a different version of the Glenn Johns mix than the rest of the world. How does that happen? That's a good question. So the the version that we here in the States and in Britain and everywhere else got is not actually truly the first glenn johns mix glenn johns did a mix in january of 1969 and that's the first mix but that doesn't bother me that much because well nowhere on there does it actually say this is the first glenn johns mix it's the glenn johns 1969 mix well 1969 slash 1970 because he did keep tweaking it into 1970 right I've always figured, you know, the first mix is what he presented to them. And they said, well, that, this, that, that, you know, and then he he went back and did it again. There's at least three from 69. uh, And then there's one from 70. And we do have all of these on bootleg nowadays. (laughs) Right. Although they won't be mastered like this particular recording. Well, this is true. I mean, we, we went through that last week. This is the first time that anyone has ever done any kind of mastering on this disc everything we've heard up to now has sounded kind of like a bootleg and this sounds like a record before we get into the disc itself i wanted to recap just a little tiny bit of the history of how we first got this as a bootleg the first time this was aired was on september the 20th of 1969 on wkbw in buffalo new york right and it was all you know, right there with Abbey Road, basically. That was actually the second version, the May version of the the Glenn Johns mix. And then two days later, the January version showed up on WBCN in Boston. 
Right. That had a name, didn't it? Posters, incense, and strobe candles. Strobe candles. <laughs> if you listen to it, the original copy of the tape, and incidentally, I know the guy who actually taped it off the radio and, and provided the tape to the bootleggers. All right. There's all sorts of hilarious commercials from the era. <laughs> so it's a timepiece. Step out soon in something new from a Chess King store in Waltham and Dedham, Mass. For the latest styles and bells, flared bells, Edwardian suits, belted jackets with a Napoleon look, suede and leather jackets with a Western look, also posters, incense, and strobe candles. You'll find a Chess King store at 350 Moody Street in Waltham, Mass. Open daily from 9.30 to 5.30, Wednesday and Friday until 9.30 p.m. Chess King in the Dedham Mall is open Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 9.30 p.m., and the Chess King store announced a free movie festival Wednesday and Friday, October 1st and 3rd from 5.30 to 8.30. So bring a friend on those dates for the free Chess King movie festival. It's a timepiece. And we know it's the 22nd because halfway through the disc, he says, Okay, we'll end it here for now and we'll get back to the Beatles, so to speak, at 8.30. If you have a television set in your midst on Channel 7, you will find the Beatles. And that was for... That was the premiere of the Ballad of John and Yoko video. Really? Yep. September the 22nd, 1969. They had a, a, a brief show that showed music videos. I, you know, it was one of those variety show type things. Well, that's what normally everything got shown on, you know, Smothers Brothers or Glenn Campbell or something like that. But, but there was this show that was on very briefly, you know, it didn't even really get through a season. But that's where I saw the Ballad of John and Yoko for the first time. Hmm. We did a whole show on it, but there's just a priceless story about how WKBW actually obtained their copy of the tape. You know, there's a guy who called the station and said, we've got to meet in Toronto and we're not going to meet anywhere that anyone can see us. We've got to be in an open parking lot. And so bring cash in a plain brown paper bag. It was just a rehearsal for Deep Throat and Watergate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, of course, everyone assumes that this was John's copy of the tape because, well, why else would it end up in Toronto? But it turned out not to be the case. Well, it makes sense. But you know, That was, you know, some pretty filled times because you had Abbey Road, you had these bootlegs, you had Paul McCartney's dead. It was all happening at once. The BCN guy, the DJ goes off on about, you know, if they keep releasing Beatles albums every two days, our our Capitol promo guy is just going to fall over and die. <laughs> right. That's true. But if the trend continues, if Beatle albums are released every four days, it's really going to drive poor Brian crazy. The KBW one is not bootlegged nearly as often just because WKBW insisted on putting an announcement not only between songs, but like through every song. It's like having a watermark in a photograph. It's like every, every 45 seconds. reason that no one could quite figure out in the middle there was a jingle for a canadian radio station play break the bank on cjrs this is the kb exclusive it's the beatles and uh i guess that's it is there any more uh coming up doesn't look like it 
the Beatles' brand new album, Get Back. Uh, let, let me uh, tell you a little bit about it. It's, it's a double album set, and it's set for a release in December. The date for release is December, but KB... WKBW exclusive. Thank you, thank you Jeff. Uh, KB has got it now, exclusively, and boy, did we go to trouble to get it. Oh, sounds like there's a little more coming. That's just bizarre. The hypothesis that the folks on the internet have is they actually ended up transferring the acetate to tape at a Canadian station, and, and they think that the Canadian guys were just fooling around. <laughs> wow. I'll put up the link to the whole story, and like you say, we, we actually did an episode on it a while back, but uh, it's quite a read. Now, the BCN tape, which is the first version of the Glenn Johns tape, that actually was widely bootlegged. And that became Comeback. And that's the first one I ever got. Plain white sleeve, purple printing. Yes, stamped. Yeah, and there were no markings on the label, as, as I recall. And it sounded terrible, other than the fact that it was <laughs> the Beatles, you know. The, the Comeback album was not meant to launch an industry, but there, there was the Comeback album, and there was Dylan's uh, Great White Wonder. And after that, people couldn't stop putting whatever they could get their greedy little taped <laughs> fingers on right. onto, onto vinyl discs and selling them in head shops and and flea markets and and cool record shops where you could find things yeah i mean for a while there bootlegs actually managed to make their way out to legitimate record stores yeah but they were always like the small ones you know the the, the record stores that were in houses and you didn't see them in any chain stores or, or anything like that but it definitely i can recall going to flea markets and seeing booth after booth with cartons of bootlegs there were lots of really lousy beatles live albums and i remember zeppelin and uh, you know it was definitely an industry and they were all horribly mislabeled as well <laughs> well they weren't looking at the packaging so much it took us until well into the 90s to actually straighten out what recording belonged to what city <laughs> right and you know there were so many that were just basically a white sleeve with a photocopied list of songs and maybe a bad photograph and it wasn't even really attached to the album half the time it was just stuck in the shrink wrap by the mid to late 80s the bootleg industry actually started to become reasonable enough and, and they actually started printing covers and you got decent sound off of bootlegs yeah i mean it wasn't too long you know i'm just talking about those really early days it still took about a decade by the late 70s, well, we got the Houston show. We got the, the Texan Troubadours, and that was among the first of the really, really pretty good bootlegs. Although that was, again, still just a blueprinted cover. The one I got was live at the Sam Houston Coliseum, double album, and it had decent packaging. I mean, you could still tell it was a bootleg just from the packaging. It wasn't record company quality. By the mid to late 80s, they were actually frequently doing better than Capital did. Yeah, by the late 80s, most of the bootlegs I was getting were, were uh, CDs. That was also when the Niagara's first started leaking out, and you right. know, we were getting like 30 days, and we were actually getting copies of the whole thing. The Black Album was really well done, I always thought. 
Yeah, that was a little bit earlier. That was amongst the the first batch along with Sam Houston Coliseum. But we mentioned this just because it's so nice to actually finally get this cover and this concept in an official disc. Right. Care taken with what the original idea was. The photo was specifically taken for the Get Back Project. It was the whole idea was that they were updating their 1963 Please Please Me debut with a brand new cover, same positions, you know, just six years later. They had to do it twice. <laughs> right. Uh, there was a porch, so he, so Angus McBean couldn't get the exact same angle. Right. So they dismantled it, didn't they? I mean, you know, they had to reassemble it, but they allowed them <laughs> to dismantle it, so. Right. So EMI wasn't always unreasonable. <laughs> well, and that staircase is uh, the only piece of that building that still stands. They moved it. It's so historical that they moved it into their new building. Two album covers are worth. That's more than that. I mean, you know, people did lots of things with it, and and people have done things on that staircase before. But in particular, it's the Beatles that made it something globally known. Right. And John and George in their 66 tour jackets, that's, that always amused me. But it's like, <laughs> why are Paul and Ringo not dressed the same way? Did, did John call up George and just not call the other two? <laughs> we'll never know, but that's a good point. George and John look alike, but Paul and Ringo kind of look alike. So They're sort of vaguely wearing similar clothes, the, the sort of suede. Yeah jackets now we have the cover and and we have the record that kind of <laughs> was going to be the uh proposed get back album the rear cover you know again eight being the the please please me cover right the only thing about the various different versions of it not only did they change the title of the album <laughs> every version has a different and and other songs yeah right <laughs> yeah, there's 12 there's nine there's 10 there's <laughs> there's almost as many versions of get back as there are guitar leads that george put on <laughs> yeah um a fella on the internet has actually made copies of seven distinct george harrison <laughs> lead guitar bits from let it be amazing <laughs> we were thinking three or four but it's like nope he found seven seven uh, yeah but you know it makes sense if you have 20 takes of a song you're gonna have 20 different leads as they go through the song admittedly some of the leads that are let it be were done later as overdubs especially given that what we know about george you know george loved to tinker with his solos he never quite got the star standing there solo he liked he kept changing it I, I don't think you can find two live shows where he plays exactly the same solo on star standing there yeah but you know he like to work things out i mean he admitted that he wasn't really a, a jammer he liked to craft which is why you end up with a, a solo like something or you know some of his stuff is just so iconic to the, the recording you really can't imagine anybody else or anything else Onto the disc itself, some general comments. A lot of these mixes are pretty similar to the mixes we got on naked yeah i guess the thing that that i like about this is that making it sound mastered, improvement of the quality of the sound, the idea of what this album was struck me in a way it hadn't really before. You know, that it was just a presentation of them writing and messing about in the studio, which is why you have a part of Don't Let Me Down and then Don't Let Me Down and Teddy Boy, which is 
not even a complete song. <laughs> the idea is there they are working in the studio. We're going to run through the tracks, uh, maybe not coming quite on the track so much as we've already talked about a lot of them, but I agree with you. The, particularly now that it's mastered, you get the feel for what they were trying to accomplish. And this is really the first time we've been able to get that from the recordings. Right. I still think they would have rejected it because, well, despite warts and all, they really didn't want a disc to come out like this, I don't think. I don't think John did, and I don't think Paul did. We've come to love these recordings that were given to us originally. And so these other performances sometimes don't come up to what we think the song should be. And, you know, we can't ever really get a new view of those songs. But there are songs that have clear flaws in them, which is part of how this was being presented. They're clearly having fun in a way that they don't on any other recording. Right. And then the other thing for us listening to it now, why it's great that they did the master on it is as we just mentioned, we have heard all the Nagras. You know, we've heard all the 30 days for, you know, 25, 30 years. <laughs> you know, even if we've heard the full version of these recordings, it's hard to put your brain in a place where, oh, this is new, but it, they've managed it. Right. You know, at the time, Glenn Johns described what he was trying to accomplish as letting the listener be a fly on the wall. And that's a pretty good description. Right. I don't know how it was all put together, but the immediacy of the project starting at Twickenham, they clearly were not doing finished recordings. There wasn't sound equipment, multi-track machines to get all down in Twickenham, because what they were doing was they were going to do a show of their White Album songs. Originally, that idea had kind of died out by the time they actually started in January of 69. That was more sort of the roundhouse gigs were, oh, we'll do White Album stuff. And it was a White Album promotion. That's the way I've always heard it. Right. So they weren't really intending to cut an album initially. When exactly that happened is a little bit nebulous. Right. But sometime after they sort of started at Twickenham, uh, then it was we're going to rehearse all these songs and then we're going to go ahead and play this whole new set live. And that's going to be the album. When I listened to conversations that went on between them, they had this idea that once they decided it was an album, they had to do 14 songs. Well, they never had 14 songs. That's the bit that's in the trailer. You know, we need 14 new songs. How many do we have? None. None. <laughs> right. Kind of a forceful none. The whole project was always evolving, and therefore I can see that the instructions that Glenn Johns got was just kind of tape everything, and, and we're, it's going to be like this, you know, we're working on this album, so that what Glenn Johns presented was not the album, it was the working on this music. Yeah, I, I don't know what Glenn Johns was told by the end of january 1969 he put together this first compilation right after the rooftop show and so you know what exactly did the beatles tell him i mean we know at some point during that three weeks they had decided it was going to be an album yes right and we also have to kind of separate there was this idea of the rooftop concert and they did 
the songs that were appropriate to that. But then they also came back the very next day and did Two of Us and Long Winding Road and Let It Be because they were not conducive to doing on a roof. Yeah, they're, they're not going to pull the piano up on the roof. <laughs> no. Mal, put your back into it. <laughs> no, you can't ask Neil. <laughs> you know, they never got to the point where they were doing all these songs in concert. That is true. Therefore, I kind of like the approach or at least appreciate the approach that Glenn Johns did, which was this is not an album per se, because we're going to let the interesting things in, you know, the fact that they didn't even finish Teddy Boy. Well, I mean, it both was and wasn't an album. (laughs) Right. You know, they knew that this was a disc that was going to come out. Was it a soundtrack or was it an album or was it something completely different? And they never decided. Well, you know, from what I've heard McCartney say at the time was that he was almost disappointed that it's an album again. We're doing an album. And he saw this all as being a visual project. And so the John's album is the record of that visual project. It isn't an album. Yes, it's an album, but it's not anything like the Beatles had done where you had these finished, completed songs. Well, I mean, the fact that we can't define it uh, (laughs) gives some insight into why it sat around for over a year. Right. Okay, so let's move on to the actual album or collection of songs. (laughs) The first song on the record is uh, the rooftop performance of One After 909. Uh, Again, much like the Spectre version. Right. And perfect to open this album. You know, this is the earliest song that they could do. It dated all the way back to 1960 or perhaps even a little earlier. But the recordings of it from 1960. So for their Get Back project, One After 909. But you get Glenn Johns, again, sort of picking and choosing the bits of laughter and, you know, chat that he wants to use because we get the past the audition thing here. While I guess it does make some sense putting it at the end of the first song, in reality, it was at the end of Get Back, although not the end of the version of Get Back where it's actually tagged on. Right. Well, you know, I'm just kind of thinking perhaps it's the concept of here's this really old song. And John says, thank you. I hope we pass the audition. And then off we go. And they go into a couple of really old songs that they used to play. Well, the rocker is just Paul fooling around the first part of that. Then we get more of Paul fooling around. And really the only remnant of what we get just sort of hours and hours of on the Nagras is them playing oldies with the Save the Last Dance for Me. Right. Although it's got some life to it. You know, unlike a lot of the oldies that they just sort of aimlessly pick around. And they don't know the lyrics, (laughs) you know. He knows the chorus and that's about it, I think. And the rhyme sounds, he knows those. Which then goes into an intro for Don't Let Me Down. Yes, but, you know, it sounds to me like they all intended it. I mean, it's not an accident or like a surprise because several of them, you know, there's a stop. Don't let me down. And, and they all do it. So They were ready, but they didn't quite know which version or the arrangement that they wanted to use. Right. right. Again, they were working through things. And this is the tape of them working through things. And it's not bad. I mean, it's kind of amazing to see just how they work together. Right. But, you know, I've wondered why 
those were used when them singing You Really Got a Hold of Me is in the movie. And it's not a bad version. That was a Glenn Johns choice. And Glenn Johns seemed to have liked this assembly of the three songs because he kept it. Right. He substituted various other songs in and out through his versions of Get Back. But this stayed. Right. Well, maybe he got a thumbs up from somebody. Could well be. Okay, so the third track is actually Don't Let Me Down. Right. This is a question because the way the mix is here is unique to this version of the disc. Uh, When John goes to Ringo and says, you know, give me a nice big you know, uh-huh. get a symbol hit so so he can come in with and do what he has to do. Right. Uh, <laughs> we but, screaming in. But here, the word big is mixed out. It's edited out. And it's not that way on any of the Glenn John's proper versions. Is it? I had I really, I didn't know. So, so if you listen to it here, it's, it's give me a nice big... And the or the word big is just cut. Hmm. I don't again. It may not be cut. It may just be mixed out. You're right. But again, it's a minor thing, and it might have been a mistake somewhere along the way. Right. We don't know how things got to Japan, <laughs> so who knows how how big disappeared? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just the one word. It's just the word big. And this is a really good version of uh, "Don't Let Me Down." It has the three part harmony in the chorus. And there's a, a looseness, but a life to it, I guess. John encourages Billy Preston to finish out the song. Yeah, hit it, Bill. Hit it, Bill. And Paul kind of does this falsetto. What more time? Yeah, it's almost like a Beatlemania thing. You don't, you don't expect him to be you know, doing a woo. <laughs> right, yeah. But it does collapse at the end. The single came out in April. I don't know why... You would put a different version of Don't Let Me Down on the, that album. but The Glenn John's first assembly was in January of 69. And so, you know, maybe he just kept it. Yeah. He put it there before the singles, and that's the version it's going to be. Right. Everybody grew to love the... <laughs> The single version. Or the or, or the roughness of this one. So or the, kept, or the rooftop in. version. I mean, yeah. where, where, he, where John forgets the lyrics. Yeah, for sure. And then John's chat at the very end, you know, we're going to change the tempo a little. <laughs> right. And we're going to do dig a pony straight now. I got a fever. <laughs> right. So, you know, that sounds like a show to me, which they didn't yeah. keep in Phil Spector's version. You know, it didn't kind of go flow from one into the other, but you can see how it works. Yeah, and all of this seems to have been recorded on the the 22nd of January. I guess Glenn Johns really liked the recordings from that day. Yeah, I can't tell you why he preferred that. Don't Let Me Down was from the 22nd. Dig a Pony was from the 22nd, and I Got a Feeling was from the 22nd. Right. So Dig a Pony starts with Glenn letting the name check stay in the record. Okay, let's do the next song then. Does he tape in there? Yeah. We'll do Dig a Pony straight into I've Got a Fever. Okay. So you're doing the You Never Change drumming now. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. Cut out. All right, Glynis, we're off again. Yeah. Okay. A one, two, three. Where they're talking about what little bits needed to be worked on, and Paul was still concerned about the part that eventually got cut out which is all i want is 
and it did get cut out. <laughs> well, Paul knows best. <laughs> well, maybe Phil didn't think it worked either. <laughs> I like John's vocal here. This is a really good vocal. It's a clean, it's a very clean vocal where some of the others aren't quite as uh, straightforward. And the guitar work is also, it's clearly not done. George hasn't figured everything out, but this is a work in progress, but it's still really good. Again, another conversation I recall with them and George Martin. Then they were talking about the versions, you know, how far they'd gotten and had we gotten anything yet, which is when Sean says no. And George Martin says, well, it's it's almost there. It's like when you do the performance, it will be there. Yeah, and, and George Martin would know. I mean, of course, he had been there through all the years and he knew when the next one would be the take. Right. So as you said, the the guitar work is not perfect, but it was getting there and he knew that the performance would. And with Dig a Pony, it was the performance. It was on the rooftop. Then Ringo sounds great here. Yeah. Some of his fills are spectacular. Yeah. And while most of them made it through to the rooftop version, I mean, you know, it's like Ringo says, he never plays exactly the same way twice. (laughs) Yes. Track five is I've Got a Feeling which, as we say, was also recorded on the 22nd, although the dialogue came from a different day. It came from the 27th, and it was actually recorded as it's presented right after Dig a Pony. Right. Still working on the show, perhaps. That was their intention, I think. The vocals aren't quite perfect, but again, they're perfectly serviceable for both Paul and John. It wouldn't have been the take, but given what the idea was it's great this works right it would have been the the next take down the road and then it ends with john i cocked it up trying to get loud yeah <laughs> cocked it up trying to get loud yeah and glenn lets himself be name checked again you know ringo says glenn what does that sound like <laughs> Well, yeah, I, mean, I guess. You know, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, you know, from what we know, Glenn Johns at that point was not a producer, and he was still kind of in awe of working with the Beatles. If it's one of us, if we have 10 times where he says, where Ringo says, John Stone, what do you think about that? You're going to include every damn one of them. I, probably, you know. <laughs> but, you know, Glenn Johns was, I mean, even though he wasn't considered a producer, he was certainly on the cusp of it. He was an industry professional, and he he knew about and had hung out with musicians. But still, this was the Beatles. Yeah. And more importantly, it wasn't George Martin. That was what was weird. Exactly. Then track six is Get Back, which matches the single version, basically. Right. And again, there's some fairly minor differences so this may have been a slightly altered mix from any of the glenn johns mixes again we're only talking about like a second of a little gap or a second of silence here i think we talked about it earlier but you know there was a point with the single the mix of get back that it was played on the air mccartney listened to it had it remixed and so even though it is the same get back version this is probably an earlier mix it might even be the mix that mccartney was not happy with it could well be but it's not a mix that was on any of the the glenn johns compilations but yeah it could well be that they pulled the tape and it's the one that mccartney didn't like i don't like that breath right there let's cut it out (laughs) right did i clear my throat in the middle of this (laughs) 
No, no, that was the other song. <laughs> okay, then we get For You Blue from the 25th of January. Starts with the Quiet Please, which right. is nice to hear, you know. False starts. I don't know about this echo that they put on George's vocal. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward song. You can do a few things with it, but it doesn't bother me that much. It hadn't bothered me on any of the bootlegs, but now that it's so clean, (laughs) you know, the the echo kind of was like, "Eh, that's a bit much, I think. And as as we're going to discover, the same thing very definitely applies to the songs at the end. Yeah. Well, clearly they thought that they had it because you notice For You Blue was not part of that January 31st thing. It was all Paul's songs, but For You Blue wasn't part of that. Yeah, exactly. Then we move on to uh, Teddy Boy from the 24th of January. This is a song called Teddy Boy. Beatles were going to once put this out, but Paul used it on his solo album. This is the story of a boy named Ted and his mother said, Ted be good, he would. She told him tales about a soldier dying, but it made her sad, and she cried, oh my. Ted used to tell her he'd be twice as good, and he knew he could, cause in his head, Mama, don't worry, our teddy boy's here, taking good care of you. Mama, don't worry, our teddy boy's here, Teddy's gonna see you through. Then came the day she found herself a man, Teddy turned and ran far away. Okay. Stance his mother in love with another man he didn't know. Oh no. He found a place where he could settle down, and from time to time, in his hand, he said, Mama, don't worry, our teddy boy's here, taking good care of you. Mama, don't worry, our teddy boy's here, Teddy's gonna see you. She said, Teddy, don't worry, your mommy is here, taking good care of you. Teddy, don't worry, your mommy is here, mommy's gonna see you through. This is the story of a boy named Ted, and his mother said, Ted, be good. What can you say about Teddy Boy? I I like the McCartney version of Teddy Boy. Yeah, it's a nice song. I think that at least John felt like it was kind of in the vein of Paul's, what he called granny music. You know, he kind of sees it as a hoedown. Well, I'm a little bit surprised that Paul let Glenn get away with leaving the square dance calling in the middle there. Well... It's kind of funny. <laughs> Again, Paul has 
no idea of the lyrics and there are his own lyrics. He just hasn't written them yet. Right. You know, it, it's interesting to think that if it was being presented on this compilation that McCartney would even bother to finish it. That's the question. I mean, Teddy boy disappeared from the 1970 Glenn Johns mix. Right. But by that time, I think that McCartney clearly had finished the song and was cutting a version of it for his solo album. Did Paul actually go to him and say, I'm going to use this. Can we take this off of the get back album? That's always been my understanding was that he actually said he was going to use it. Then you have to ask, why didn't Alan Klein and Phil Spector just use it to spite him? (laughs) Well, we've got this perfectly good Beatles version of of that song. We're going to use it. I mean, you know, unlike what we were saying about George, and it's like, well, they were trying to keep George happy by not using all things must pass. Between the two of them, they definitely wanted to make Paul mad at that point in time. Yeah, that is kind of weird because certainly uh, you would think that Klein would still be trying to get McCartney in the fold. I mean, he didn't want the Beatles to break up. I, I actually don't know. I mean, you know, it's kind of the thing that John Lennon says is, why ruin a good thing by staying together? <laughs> right. And I've got control of three quarters of you anyway. As solo albums, these guys are going to put out more records than I would have gotten out of the Beatles. So go ahead, break up. Once we've got this contract signed. I kind of have a hard time believing that. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. Is it, cause I, you know, he'd, he'd work. Playing a little devil's advocate here. Yeah, I, I get it. I think he'd want the band to stay together. And I mean, it wasn't looking good when John bailed, but I don't know that he wanted to piss off McCartney necessarily. <laughs> and then maybe he did. I don't know. Yeah. It would take a, a year and change before he really wanted to piss off McCartney. Yeah. It was coming, but because I'm, I'm still not certain that how you sleep would have been recorded. Had Klein not been pushing John to do it. Right. Well, you know, with all that had gone on, one of the things that McCartney really got angry about was, was the fact that Abco which he had basically rejected, that was Klein's business, was put on the cover of McCartney. He's like, he doesn't represent yeah. me. Of course, he had something to do with Apple, but all that was going to do was piss him off. Paul was the one who listened to the Rolling Stones with regards to Klein. So do you know exactly what Paul's saying there at the fade out of the song? You know, So there's that one something for consideration. I, I don't know what's in, that mid, in the middle of yeah, that sort of unintelligible kind, bit there. Kind of garbled, but so it's like it's, you know, there's that one for further consideration. We, we obviously get the gist of what he's saying, but I, right. I just didn't know exactly what the words were. Maybe it's in the book. I'll have to go and check. Right. Well, since Teddy Boy wasn't finished, for further consideration, maybe, you know, should we finish that one up? But they didn't (laughs) because it was a hoedown. (laughs) (laughs) John seemed to be having fun. And he only did that on a couple of takes. I mean, you know, and there are numerous takes of Teddy Boy on the Nagras. Right. He didn't do that in every version. That's Again, that's why, gee, why did Glenn decide to keep that one? I mean, maybe because he thought it was the best of what they had available. Maybe. And again, it's it's Nagras versus what they actually recorded on the eight tracks. Yeah. Maybe they only had one or two versions of Teddy Boy that he could use. It, it strikes me that John's hoedown thing and his waltzing to I Me Mine, you know, that he had this kind of attitude towards other people's 
stuff. At, at one point, I, you hear him singing, let it be, let it see, let it be, let it be. You know, he had that sense of humor, but I'm sure his bandmates were like, you're making fun of my stuff again. Uh, and and I doubt anybody would dare make fun of any of John's songs. <laughs> <laughs> we can't mention that without mentioning the, the Sesame Street Beatles. Letter B. <laughs> Letter B. That's true. The Beatles performing the haunting and beautiful letter B. When I find I can't remember what comes after A and B for C My mother always whispers Let her be She told me B starts big and bad And ball and bat and battery Yes, ba 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 means let her be Let her be, let her be let her be, let her be She whispers ba 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 means let her be And then the other thing it makes me think a little bit of is, you know, a lot of people said Crippled Inside was uh, John talking about Paul. Again, maybe he's calling, by doing the country thing, he's kind of remembering the teddy boy. <laughs> Could be. Just a thought. The next is the January 24th version of Two of Us. I really like this version. If you remember when I talked about the one that Spectre used, I thought that the John and Paul vocals didn't quite blend properly, particularly in the first verse of Spectre. Here they're spot on. Yeah. And this is the one where you can hear him kind of do a, in, in my head, I think of it as kind of a Dylan thing, where he takes the hot and pay. You know, he kind of drops the last word it's effective on the song again this is one where glenn sort of brought up the reverb glenn has seemed to like the reverb quite a bit and maybe not quite as much as phil but i was gonna say we're we're comparing this to phil specter yeah you know nobody clearly was going to mix it like george martin would have you know and that's what we're used to those choices yeah i would have liked the vocal to be really sort of clean and clear all the way through and, and you know and then it starts you starts in with the reverb and it's like eh, i don't like that quite so much yeah but, well you know they talk about having a pa system like they did in in hamburg and they talked about the echo and everything and so john was kind of famous for when he did his vocals hearing reverbs and you know slap back and all sorts of stuff in his headphones he liked that this is a little bit different so i would assume those reverbs were added either later or it's what they wanted live and then of course on the rooftop with all those buildings around them you know the sound was bouncing back to them from all over the place yeah in the movie <laughs> let it be when the cameras are on the ground and you can hear them from up there there's this sound that's all around you but it's distant that's what it was probably like it's like being in a baseball stadium you know now 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 <laughs> pitching 
<laughs> where you, you get all of that just sort of bouncing off the walls and coming back. And McCartney even talks about it now when he says, you know, playing stadiums, even with the monitors in his ears, he will sometimes complain about the bounce back coming off of the walls uh, at the far end of the stadium. Yeah. We're going home. Going home. So we leave the little town of London, England. Then we go into the January 24th recording of Maggie May. Again, what can you say about Maggie May? Yeah, it, it is what it is. And it's part of the concept, you know, little throwaway song. But again, I, I really like the Ringo's little symbol work there. <laughs> it adds a nice touch to it. Right. Then we get the one song which... You know, you always got to have one controversial song. It's the four-minute, nine-second version of Dig It from January the 26th. Ah, uh, yes, the famous <laughs> January 26th version of Dig It. <laughs> and I guess we can say at least they didn't provide the full thing from the Nagras, because presumably, since this was recorded on the 8-track, they have the 11 and a half minute version <laughs> around somewhere. Wouldn't it be funny if this was the song that George Martin was talking about when they said, how is that George? Well, it wasn't as good as take 46, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> so we have 52 takes of dig it, <laughs> you know, a, a jam. And then Glenn had edited in some uh, dialogue from the 24th, which is like, okay. <laughs> and as we now know, that's where Can You Dig It by Georgie Wood comes from. It's not from the end of the song. It's from the middle of it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so he's slicing and dicing, but he didn't slice this wood quite enough. <laughs> I think Phil cut it a little bit too short. I could have used a minute and a half of it. <laughs> 409 is like McCartney now. You know, it's like <laughs> you, you get these songs where it's like, okay, this would have been a nice interstitial or, or this is, you got just enough of a tune that this would have worked in the middle of two other things, but do we really need this whole thing here? Yeah. And then we say this and we go and listen to the 11 and a half minute because <laughs> because it's on the Nagras. But you know, the parts that I, I'm sorry about is that why couldn't we have a, a galloping version of two of us or why couldn't we have gotten a Susie Parker. They didn't actually record them with the eight track. Right. I'm just talking about, but they worked. How many versions of these do they record? You know, yeah. they worked on this and not something that had a little bit more something. <laughs> Two of us, they'd already decided on the version that they wanted. The They, they discarded the galloping, the, the fast version by the time they hit the Apple studios and started doing something with it you know, actually putting down the recording. So all we have is the Niagara's. Right. You say, why did Glenn Johnson not use it? Well, he didn't have it. No, no. Actually, I'm saying, why didn't the Beatles work on that material more? And try it. Yeah. yeah. And Susie Parker is something else. Yes. You know. Again, it only exists in, in the Niagara's, but it would have been nice had they at least pulled it out once for the eight track yeah. in the studio. Right. And, you know, this is just me. <laughs> me uh second guessing what the beatles wanted to do but rather than work three or four times on this dig it which is just kind of a free form 
thought streaming thing rather than a you know something more worked out like i mean Susie parker sounded like it could have gone somewhere yeah and that would have been a john song i mean uh you know part of the reason i'm sure they went with dig it is they were short on john songs i mean of course that's why across the universe really <laughs> showed up exactly but you know we, we all know that okay so john didn't have much songs george had a few yeah more than a few you know so it was just the way they were thinking you know at the time i guess and which is probably why they had that meeting when they decided john will get four and paul will get four and george will get four and, and ringo will get two if he wants them <laughs> then we move on to the january 31st version of let it be again there's a little bit of film stuff there you know sink sink to second clap please <laughs> i was supposed to giggle in this solo that's at the end there yep <laughs> so is that a commentary on george's lead not sure probably not no although again the comment comes after a different lead from george k27 with the original solo is on the naggers and the, you know it's not the one that's here huh well there you go so maybe maybe it was a commentary i don't know <laughs> the problem here is again not quite to spectorian levels but glenn just turned up the reverb too much for my taste particularly on paul's vocal the piano it's not so bad you're hanging with uh let it be naked at this point yeah for this version of the song although i've always liked the one in the film the read the record mirror version of let it be right that's probably the version the beatles version of let it be that i like (laughs) the most although i do like the naked version they actually may be the same version and i'd have to go check right but you know we were talking about ringo and ringo re-recording stuff for phil you can really hear ringo's playing this is a perfectly good performance from ringo oh yeah you know more than even on the single version you can clearly hear everything ringo is playing and he is on bravo glennis <laughs> the album ends with well Almost ends with Long and Winding Road. That is an interesting choice to me, to take two piano ballads and put them back to back. And two Paul songs. Yeah. (laughs) Again, the reverb is slightly more than I would have cared for, although it's not quite as bad as Let It Be. Right. But, you know, this being basically the last song, so far we've heard all these songs. There's no female choruses overblown choruses or swooping strings or syrupy strings or clinging strings and so it really kind of works you know that's kind of where we started and i agree with you you know this is the first probably best representation of the project as it was originally intended yeah the fact that we've gotten this mastered just shows that for what it was glennis was right yeah it is a little gem. Would it have worked as a Beatles album? Uh, you know, an official, honest-to-goodness Beatles album. If this had been what came out after Abbey Road, that's a question. It would have sold. I mean, you know, obviously Spectre's thing sold. Yeah. But we look at it through the lens of history. Yeah, that's the uh, truth. You know, Let It Be is far too often written off because of the review at the time in Rolling Stone, you know, the, the cardboard tombstone. Yeah, nobody was happy with the movie. Nobody was happy with Phil Spector's version. I mean, clearly, people were happy with it. We all bought it. <laughs> but the critics, the, yeah. the reviewers, would have would have just jumped all over this. Yeah. Again, not that it deserved it, but I can just picture the reviews in that alternate universe. 
And then, of course, now we get all these glowing reviews of the box, and they're all like, oh, and you get this great Glenn Johns mix. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as a project, perhaps if it would have come out with the movie, it would have been more like the movie. It would have been more understandable. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Spectre's version of Let It Be wasn't of the movie. I mean, we saw Paul sing Long and Winding Road in the movie. What we heard on record was not that. And the fact that these bootlegs have been out, you know, I don't know how many people I've talked to. It's like, yeah, you know, we either heard one of the various radio airings of the tape or we'd gotten the comeback well before Let It Be actually showed up, although well before is months, not a year before. Yeah. And in general, what they all say is, well, I liked Long and Winding Road this way. And then I listened to it on Let It Be and it's, what did they do to it? Right. So you got the boot before the release or just after the comeback? I got it afterwards. I got Let It Be when it came out. On the day of, that's what you said. Um, But I got comeback later on in the year, and I want to say September, October, something like that. A little more than 51 years ago now, (laughs) not to remind you. (laughs) Right. Well, I need people to remind me because I keep forgetting so much. (laughs) Yeah, so I think it would have been successful and more in keeping with what was in the theater. And then had they not broken up, the album after that would have been another great Beatle album. This would have been more of a tied to a movie thing. Yeah, kind of like the American soundtracks to Hard Day's Night and Help. Right. So the very end of the album is uh, a reprise of Get Back. I, I almost think uh, Glenn uh, is parodying the Sgt. Pepper reprise. You know, I, I almost think he should have stuck this before Long and Winding Road. So Long and Winding Road takes the day in the life place. And then. Well, I, I just saw it as being, you know, I don't know what came first, this or the movie, but it that's how the movie ends. Yeah, get back. You've been out too long, Loretta. You've been playing on the roots again. And that's no good. Because you know your mommy doesn't like that. Oh, she gets angry. Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> get back, get together. Get back. Oh, we gotta get together. credits roll it's this little thing laughing get back the movie edit wasn't done right wasn't done then because you know again we're talking about within days of the rooftop concert yeah and we know it would be several months before they would get any sort of edit of the film and then of course we don't even know what the first michael Lindsay hogg edit looked like maybe that's you know 
glad John's finished his album out that way and the, the movie copied it. And, and, and Michael Lindsay Hogg said, oh, I like that idea. Yeah. Let's get back. That's uh, the Glenn Johns disc, although not exactly. Although, like you say, it, it doesn't bother me overly much. Although I'm not going to go searching it out, but it would be nice if Capital would make the actual first Glenn Johns mix available <laughs> somewhere. You know, we've already bought the box. Well, this has been great. We'll see you next week. Thanks, John. <laughs> we'll be back next week with a new show. to when they was fab on itunes podbean stitcher or wherever finer podcasts are found please join our facebook group and we could be reached at when they was fab and on gmail the opening theme was written produced and recorded by jay young kim beaster famine studios san francisco california The Long and Winding Road. It's the Beatles, their brand new double album, Get Back. Uh, before I forget, this is WKBW Buffalo, 1520 on the dial. We have got the uh, brand new Beatles album, the other brand new Beatles album. We had Abbey Road first, like a day and a half ahead of anybody else. And now we've got Get Back, like a couple of months ahead of everybody else. WKBW exclusive. <laughs> so am I. Uh, and this is due to be released in December. The Beatles Get Back, it's a two-record set, uh, they're, they're like going back to their old days, regression, it says here, appears to be one of the main themes for the album, beginning with the cover photo where they're posed in the offices of EMI Records in Manchester, uh, just as they were for their first English album in 1963, the one uh, that said, please, please me. WKBW exclusive. I'll tell you one thing. There's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.